Did you forget someone on your Christmas list? Or even worse, did you remember, but the shipping has been delayed and it's not going to arrive in time? Well, I've got good news. Emails are pretty much instantaneous. And that means that if you're under pressure, you can give that certain someone a gift membership to the BHP. And if they're not a fan of British history, well, you know someone who is. So if you're in need of a last minute present for someone else or just a present for yourself, you can head over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and click the gift membership button and follow the prompts and it'll get you set up pretty quick. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 436, Taking the Piss. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Buck, John, and Robert for signing up already. At long last, William was on a boat headed back to Normandy. As we mentioned before, William clearly preferred Normandy, and he spent most of the latter part of his reign there. While he did visit England when it was necessary to hold the island, he very much saw himself as a continental noble playing in the continental game of power. And when it came to their home turf, both William and Matilda took a hands-on approach. For example, when property disputes flared up along the borders of Normandy, as was the case with the castle in Gisor, William and Matilda would often handle these things directly. And this active style of rulership may have been a simple result of the fact that these two had personal relationships with other nobles. The kind of knowledge and ease that builds over a lifetime. And I'm including Matilda here very deliberately. Because while we haven't spoken that much about her in regards to England, on the continent, she was a political force to be reckoned with. And we regularly see her name appearing in charters and writs, resolving key diplomatic disputes. And Matilda's personal relationships with nobles like Count Simon of Amiens were a tremendous boon to William, whose personal relationships these days were kind of suffering. So Matilda had an important job here, and she did it very well. Another name that's cropping up in these documents is Robert the king's firstborn son and presumed heir. The same son, who's also known as Robert Curthose. And what's interesting here is that while we see his presence, we only very rarely see evidence of Robert exercising authority. Instead, it's usually his mum or dad who are in charge. And now that we're moving forward to the late 11th century, we're starting to get narrative accounts of these meetings where the charters were signed and diplomatic documents were hammered out. And in these accounts, there are times where Robert isn't even mentioned, despite the fact that his name is right there on the document. And the court was dealing with important affairs here, and so everyone had a job they needed to carry out. And you get the sense that Robert's job was to be seen and not heard. Lanfranc reinforces this hunch and takes the time to regularly remind us that it was William who held the ultimate decision-making authority and that he retained that authority. 
Now, of course, ultimate authority doesn't mean that he necessarily did all the work, and William would absolutely delegate tasks to his trusted companions and allow them to exercise some degree of authority in his name, you know, basically up to the amount that he was comfortable with. And we have seen him do this, both with courtly matters and with military matters. But it seems that Robert never made it onto this list of trusted companions. Based on the record, Robert was kept close, and he wasn't given independence nor an opportunity to make a name for himself. And that was really starting to piss Robert off. I mean, when the revolt of the earls kicked off, Robert, the eldest son and heir to the throne, wasn't dispatched to go and put them down. Instead, Archbishop Lanfranc and some justiciars were sent out. When King Caradog harbored rebel exiles, William didn't bother to send Robert into Wales on a punitive campaign. No, that job was handed to Robert's little brother, Rufus, who was so young he was still training for knighthood. And that last one really must have stung. I mean, Robert was a grown man and heir to the throne, and yet critical military matters were being handed out to priests and young teenagers. And this was doing much more than just wounding Robert's pride. It was damaging his future. Within Norman culture, these were critical years for Robert, where he was supposed to be building his reputation. He should be out there in the field demonstrating his capacity for battle and for leading men during war. He should have been exercising authority in court, showing to his own future courtiers his fitness for rule. That would give him the chance to demonstrate the key traits of a worthy nobleman. Sense, restraint, and good judgment. And these diplomatic meetings would also be where he'd build the critical web of political ties with his peers who would later become key members of his court and help him remain in power. That's what he should be doing. But instead, here he was, sitting in court with his parents or with his parents' friends, and watching them do all of this. And every time he asked his father for independence or authority, he was denied. This was a dangerous situation for Robert, and not an entirely good one for Normandy either. Hamstringing the heir to the throne is a surefire way to create a weak kingdom. But I suspect that William just didn't trust his kid. And honestly, Looking at the records, it seems like William's trust these days didn't extend much beyond Lanfranc, Matilda, and Roger de Beaumont. But the fact remained that Robert was his heir, and he wanted a title. A title other than short pants. So, things between William and young Kurt Hose were getting frayed. But William didn't have time to deal with his kids' hurt feelings. He had an invasion to lead, because it was time to go f**k up dull. Now, this next bit of the story wanders off the island, but just for a moment. We're going to follow William to Brittany, because what happens at this point is important. It's the moment where William's shine, you know, whatever made him politically bulletproof, finally really starts to wear off, and it all centers around the attack on Dull. Now, Mid-20th century historian David Douglas believed that William headed to Dull because he was after some payback against Earl Ralph for the revolt of the earls. 
Douglas argues for this motive based on the fact that John of Worcester tells us that Dull was Earl Ralph's castle. And then Malmesbury tells us that the attack on Dull was due to William being, quote, irritated by some broil, end quote, meaning some sort of dispute with Dull. So that sounds pretty clear. After all, William was certainly a big fan of revenge. Consequently, Douglas's view has been repeated by various pop sources and, as such, has become rather prevalent on parts of the internet that talk about this whole situation. But modern historian David Bates pointed out that there are some pretty big errors in that analysis and the documents it's based on. For example, Dull wasn't actually Earl Ralph's castle. It's possible he might have been there, but the actual castle belonged to a guy named John. Worcester stands alone in the idea that the castle belonged to Ralph, and it's clear that he was wrong about it. Consequently, we should take a look at the other documents relating to this event to find out what might have happened here. Now, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle just blandly states that William besieged the castle of Dull, so that's not very helpful. But Orderick jumps in and gives us a motive for the attack. He says William wanted to expand his borders and also shrink those of Brittany. He further tells us that it rankled William that Brittany was independent, even though it had once been subject to Normandy under earlier Norman dukes, and Bill just wasn't having it. And then when we look to Breton and Angevin sources, we don't see anything about the revolt of the earls, nor do we hear about Ralph. Instead, we hear quite a lot about continental conflicts, and those continental conflicts are actually really important. You see, this castle was on Normandy's western borders, and it was also near Anjou's northern borders. So that's not a great place to be, considering how ambitious William of Normandy and Count Folk of Anjou were. And recent events had given William a reason to go visit. And these events had nothing to do with Earl Ralph. See, it turns out that the long-standing bishop of Dole, a man named Juhel, was an ally of William. But the church during this time was also really starting to push for celibacy for the clergy, and Juhel was refusing to divorce his wife. He was also selling absolution for your sins on the open market, which was a growth industry in France at this time. But it was also not exactly considered good religious practice. So Juhel was starting to accumulate demerits, and an embassy was sent to Rome to beg the Pope's permission to just fire this guy. And in summer of 1076, Pope Gregory gave them the green light. And it's actually been argued that Pope Gregory was so enthusiastic about this plan, as it fit within his own reformist views, that he decided to reward the tattletales and turn their bishopric into an archbishopric. And so, with the papal green light, Juhel was out of a job, and a man named Evanus was his replacement. Or... At least that's how it was supposed to go down. The way it actually went down, though, was that Juhel refused to relinquish his title. And instead, he packed up his stuff and ran all the way to Mont Saint-Michel, where he presumably asked his ally, William, for help. And it does seem like William took an interest, because the Pope, soon thereafter, sent a hasty letter to William where he describes the reason why Juhel was unfit for the job and had to be fired which would be a weird letter to send unless William was looking like he was about to get involved. Now, unfortunately, that letter by the Pope 
failed to arrive in time because William had already set sail. Then again, this was William. Even if the Pope's letter arrived on time, I'm not sure if it would have changed anything because Brittany in 1076 was ripe for the picking. Ecclesiastical matters were kind of the least of Brittany's problems during this period. They were dealing with dynastic problems. You see, in 1066, when Duke Conan II died, purportedly poisoned on orders of William, the duchy had passed to Conan's sister's husband, a guy named Hul. Now, there was a son of a previous Duke of Brittany who was still around, and his name was Geoffrey of Grenonet, and he was the brother of Duke Conan II and the son of Duke Alan III. The problem, though, was that he was the illegitimate son of Duke Alan III, and being married to Duke Alan's daughter ranked higher than being the illegitimate son of Duke Alan, which, in turn, ranked higher than being Duke Alan's legitimate daughter. Primogeniture, just an amazing governance system. But Geoffrey wasn't totally empty-handed here. When Huel became Duke, Geoffrey was installed at Rennes. However, you know how it goes in chivalric societies. Over time, grudges build and ambitions flare. And by 1076, this family was doing what feudal families often do. They were fighting amongst themselves. Brittany during this period, just like Normandy, was just an expanse of rebellions and wars that was stitched together like a bloody quilt. The fact is that internal French borders were unstable and ever-changing, as were the allegiances, and that created an endless stream of conflict. There weren't hard borders the way you'd imagine. There was land that you rightfully held and controlled, and then there was nearby land that you by rights should own but someone else held, but you were pretty sure you could get it back from them. And everybody pretty much had the same view of all of their border territories. And then on top of that, you had succession problems. And so right now, in 1076, Brittany was embroiled in a civil war. And that probably suited William just fine. Now, the rebels were strongest in the east, with Huel in the southern and western portions of Brittany. And so, William could support Huel in his claim and attack Dole. And then, if he just, you know, happened to acquire Dole in the process... Well, then he gained a sizable chunk of Eastern Brittany. Sounds pretty good. And so, here he was, with an army. And he wasn't alone. French records report that Anjou had also brought troops and supplies into the region. And you might remember that Anjou's ruler, Count Folk, was basically like a younger version of William. He was warlike, aggressive, and expansionist. So this whole situation was kind of a mess. And if Earl Ralph was in Dole, and remember, we only have one source saying he was, it's likely that after he returned to the continent, he kind of just got dragged into this existing conflict. And now it was one that William was also interested in. And perhaps William got interested in it because Ralph was there, but I doubt it. He had plenty of reasons to want to march on Dole. And considering that this was William, it's also plausible that Ralph was just a convenient excuse to do what he already wanted to do, which was annex some neighboring lands. In any case, though, William, alongside some forces from Hull, quickly besieged Dole. 
He wanted to bring these Breton rebels to heel. Meanwhile, to the south, it wasn't very long before King Philip, who was meeting with the Duke of Aquitaine in Poitiers, received a messenger that told him that William had invaded Brittany and besieged one of the castles there. And the French court flipped out. It wasn't that the king had a major interest in the Breton Civil War. He didn't. The trouble here was that William already controlled the Norman coastline, and his allies, the sons of Count Udo, meant that he also had significant influence along a lot of the Breton coastline. And if William took Dole, then his influence would expand dramatically across a massive swath of the French northern coast. And that's on top of holding the English coast as well. The French court could see the danger immediately, and King Philip was in such a rush to deal with this threat that he even forgot his royal seal when he marched out. Meanwhile, William, well, he was still involved in a siege, and things were getting tedious. Now, in a situation like this, usually he'd go for the old standby. He'd ravage the surrounding countryside, burning and slaughtering everything he could reach, until finally the people inside Dole just couldn't take it anymore and gave up. Unfortunately, there was a problem. He didn't have many allies in Brittany these days, and even the allies that he did have weren't providing him any help this time. Even worse, Count Fulk was in the region, so William was in hostile territory and was surrounded by not unarmed peasants, but instead hostile soldiers. The presence of Angevin forces and the presence of hostile rebel Breton forces had forced William into a situation where he was almost as stuck as the people behind the walls of Dole. And while the enemy couldn't directly challenge him at this point, they were still formidable enough that he had to keep his army close. And that impacted far more than his favorite strategy of slaughtering peasants. It also meant that William was unable to station a network of scouts to keep an eye on things. So he was blind and had no idea whatever it was that his enemies were doing out there in the field. All he could do was focus on this long, boring siege. Now, unfortunately, none of our sources give us a detailed account of what followed. We just have the bullet points. But here's what we know. William was still besieging Dole in November of 1076, when King Philip took him completely by surprise. Orderic tells us that this was a disaster, that large numbers of men and horses were lost as the Norman army was forced into a hasty retreat. They were even forced to leave their possessions and loot behind, an amount that Orderic estimated to be worth 15,000 pounds. This loss was devastating on several levels, because in addition to the life and money lost, King Philip demonstrated that William was not unstoppable. And it's probably no coincidence that shortly after this walloping, Fulk pressed into Maine. Now, his advance was pushed back, and he actually got injured in the process. But the fact that he even bothered to attack tells us a lot. Things were turning quickly against William. And then came another blow. Count Simon de Creepy was raised in the Norman court, and he was an ally of William and Matilda. 
and he was the inheritor of a huge chunk of lands that lay between Normandy and the lands that were owned by King Philip. Now, this situation with Simon is a long story, but the short version is that he wanted to marry William's daughter, Adela. But King Philip and his church allies forbid it, claiming that they were too closely related. Basically, the church's position was that Simon de Creepy was being Simon de Creepy. However, the king also refused to let Simon inherit some of his own lands, and that kind of gave the game away. This wasn't about propriety. This is about the fact that Simon was just too Normanish for the king's liking. And Simon immediately showed Philip just how Normanish he was by launching a war against him. And by this point, that war had been raging for three years. And it was bad enough that Pope Gregory got involved. And right at about this point, he finally managed to broker a peace. And soon after that peace, Simon abandoned his properties and entered a monastery. And that is how the lands between Normandy and King Philip's territory, a region called French Vexon, was acquired by King Philip. So, not only had Philip given William an absolute thrashing in Brittany, now they were neighbors. And I'm guessing that William probably wished he'd just stayed at home. But not all was lost. You see, Houle wasn't really a duke. He was just the regent. The real duke was a guy named Alan Fergant, who was the son of Houle and Houissa, who had been the sister of Duke Conan. Now, Alan was too young to rule, and Houissa died a few years ago, hence why Houle was acting as regent. And none of this would be important for us if it wasn't for the fact that Alan was about 15 years old at this point and wasn't yet betrothed. And Orderick tells us that William, realizing that he couldn't conquer Brittany with a military force, decided to take another route. Marriage. And the timing and placement of Orderick's statement suggests that in the aftermath of his failed campaign, William betrothed his daughter, Constance, to young Alan, the future Duke of Brittany. If this move worked, he could at least avoid a future war with Brittany and maybe get something positive out of this whole debacle. Maybe. It had been 10 years since his victory at Hastings. And here, in 1076, William was about as far from 1066 as he could get. Things were looking bad. But as bad as his year was, it was still better than some of William's continental peers. For example, Pope Gregory was having a tiff with King Henry IV of Italy, Germany, and Burgundy. And things between these two were really getting out of hand. Earlier in the year, King Henry IV had gathered with a bunch of priests, including Cardinal Candidus, and together they declared that Gregory wasn't Pope anymore. A few weeks later, Pope Gregory learned of this and responded by excommunicating Henry and declaring that Henry wasn't king anymore. Henry then circulated a letter where he called Pope Gregory by his old name, Hildebrand. So this fight was getting cringy, and while it destabilized papal power a little bit, it was really loosening Henry's grip on the throne. And like William's Breton campaign, I'm betting that Henry wished he'd made better choices. Honestly, 1076 was a bad year for a lot of people, 
but not for Earl Ralph. If Ralph was at Dull, he seems to have survived the siege just fine. And I bet he found the way it ended incredibly funny. And by now, he and Emma had happily established themselves in their Breton estates. So way to go, Ralph. The following year of 1077 was, well, it was still a really awful one for King Henry. He was facing a bunch of rebellions, and he actually sent an envoy to beg Pope Gregory for forgiveness, which the Pope refused. So Henry tried again, but this time in person. But Pope Gregory made like Princess Peach and just went to another castle. So now Henry was getting desperate, and he walked across the Alps in winter just to reach the Pope's refuge at Canossa, where he could finally beg for forgiveness. Which, given the ordeal Henry had just gone through, which was known as the walk to Canossa, Gregory was kind of compelled to give it to him. So, you know, rough year for Henry, but probably kind of gratifying for the Pope. Meanwhile, William was going through his own walk to Canossa. You see, he had cultivated too many enemies and nurtured too few friends. And the last thing he needed now was a prolonged war with the King of France. So, in 1077, somehow, he managed to arrange a peace with King Philip. And this was likely hard to pull off. Malmesbury reports that Philip was quite hostile to William on a personal level. He attributes this to Philip being jealous of how glorious William was. And I guess that's possible, but it probably had more to do with all the border wars. It's hard to like a guy when they keep coming for your job. So whatever William had to do to get this peace treaty, I'm guessing it took some doing. Unfortunately, our only account of this treaty comes from version E of the Chronicle. No one else mentions it. And of course, the Chronicle doesn't share much in the way of details. Instead, the scribes just tell us that this peace wasn't going to last all that long. And as far as Orderick was concerned, William had no one to blame here but himself. Here's what Orderick has to say about this point in William's reign. Quote, The death of Earl Waltheof was the cause of much censure on King William from many quarters, and numerous were the troubles, which, by the righteous judgment of God, be afterwards suffered from various attacks, which never afterwards permitted him to enjoy any continuance of tranquility. He indeed, such was his resolution, still maintained a manful struggle against all his enemies, but success did not attend his enterprises as it had done before, nor were his conflicts often crowned with victory. In the thirteen years which he afterwards lived, he never won a pitched battle, nor succeeded in taking a town he besieged. The Almighty Judge disposes all events all right, suffering no crime to go unpunished in this world, or the next. So, minor spoiler there by Orderick, but it's clear that public sentiment and political alliances had turned against William. And apparently, even God was starting to tilt the scales against him on the battlefield. Now, as you might imagine, I suspect that the turn in William's fortunes had much more to do with his chickens coming home to roost. Strongmen can get away with a lot so long as they appear strong. But the minute that mask slips, the delicious backlash begins. But Orderick's sense of divine condemnation 
was probably a common interpretation of the time. And whether or not William believed in divine intervention to that level doesn't really matter. Because regardless of his personal interpretation, these things could have real-world effects. And so that meant that if William wanted to fix his PR problem and improve his luck, he would need to get right with Big J. And so I find it totally unsurprising that Orderic informs us that King William pardoned with a flourish a popular Norman abbot, a man named Robert, who, we're told, had been previously exiled by the king for unjust reasons. Now, this exile had been carried out much earlier, so this wasn't some ongoing case or quick reversal. Instead, right on the heels of the unjust execution of a popular earl, we have this out-of-the-blue reversal of a different unjust ruling, and it's one where the defendant was fortunately still alive enough to enjoy it. So I'm thinking that Bill was starting to feel the heat here, especially since William didn't stop there. Shortly thereafter, he's seen in attendance at the consecration of Bishop Odo's Cathedral of Bayou. And this event must have been oof, a little tense. Only recently, William had thrown Odo under the bus by refusing to oversee the trial that Lanfranc had brought against him. And while Odo must have known by now that his brother's loyalty was conditional, that situation at Penedon Heath still must have stung. So that's awkward. Amplifying the drama was the fact that this was likely the same event where the bio-tapestry was unveiled for the first time. And while the subject of the tapestry was obviously William's invasion of England, the subtext of the tapestry gets really interesting because a lot of it seems to be about Odo's power and Odo's influence. Here we see Odo ordering the construction of the invasion fleet. Over there, we see Odo overseeing a feast, seated like Jesus at the Last Supper. Oh, there we see him providing William with sage counsel. And over here, he's fighting at Hastings. And it doesn't stop there. Some events were even changed from the written record, such as the location of Harold's oath just so they could include Odo and his properties. And on some occasions, we even find the inclusion of random names of people who appear to have been unimportant. But when you cross-reference those names with Odo's associates, you find some interesting matches. It looks like the tapestry was doing some shout-outs to the bishop's friends. So, while the tapestry was a graphic novel about the conquest, Odo still managed to sneak his own hero's journey right in the middle of it. And it actually gets worse, because William isn't the person who is most often featured in the tapestry. No, that honor goes to Harold. As such, this wasn't even necessarily a tale about William's heroic ascent to power. Given who had the focus here, you could easily see it as the story of the downfall of an ambitious but misguided hero. And I bet William absolutely loved that. But once the tapestry was unveiled and the building had been properly blessed, the royal court moved on. And they kept consecrating religious buildings. William was at the consecration for the Abbey of Saint-Étienne of Caen. And we also have references to the consecrations of the Church of Lebec and also the Abbey of Saint-Desir. Though in the case of Lebec, William was apparently unable to attend for some reason. But the point is that the royal court was very visibly taking part in religious rituals. 
and William wasn't alone. Archbishop Lanfranc and Archbishop Thomas made the crossing to Normandy to attend at least some of these consecrations as well. So this was an all-hands-on-deck theological charm offensive. And when he wasn't handling religious rituals or pardoning popular holy men, William was handling religious politics. You see, it turned out that there was a dispute between the nuns of Rouen and the clergy of Saint-Desir. The issue was that Bishop Hugh had died recently, and the clergy wanted the body, since Hugh had been their bishop. But Bishop Hugh had promised the nuns that they could have his body. And this sounds extremely strange, unless you understand that holy bodies were a hot-ticket item in the 11th century. And William who never seems to have missed a chance to mess around with corpse matters, got involved, and he decreed that a promise is a promise. And just like that, the nuns of Rouen were the proud new owners of a second-hand bishop body. So William really was doing his level best to get on God's good side, which was a good idea, because God did seem to be at the end of his rope these days. For example, do you remember Archbishop John of Rouen? He was the guy who was so obnoxious that he was run out of a church by rioting priests who threw rocks at him. And later, he got into a brawl with a bunch of monks. Well, while William was attending these consecrations, Archbishop John of Rouen suddenly suffered a stroke. Now, he lived through the event, but he came out the other side having lost his ability to speak. And for William, this was probably a bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand... John couldn't easily piss off the entire clergy. But on the other hand, he still held an important position as the Archbishop of Rouen. And now that he couldn't speak, that meant that governing the church was a lot more complex. And it very well might require the interventions of King William or Pope Gregory, or even worse, both. The stroke also just probably felt ominous. I mean, was this a simple medical event or a divine test? Or was it something much worse, like a divine condemnation of the state of affairs in Normandy? An 11th century audience would have viewed this event in any or all of these ways. Hell, a lot of modern people look at a sudden turn of fortune and wonder if there's a spiritual message. And a brash man who loses, of all things, his ability to speak? Well, God wasn't leaving much to interpretation there. And if God took his holy man's loud mouth... What might he take from William? And so, for most of 1077, we see William trying to make peace with King Philip, trying to make peace with churchmen, and trying to make peace with the Almighty himself. And that brings us to 1078. Something had happened on the borders of Normandy, and William felt compelled to call his forces and go on campaign. Now, it's not clear what the initial event was but it's possible that this is related to the murder of Mabel, the wife of Roger de Montgomery. This murder had taken place only months earlier, in December of 1077, and Roger was one of William's chief guys. But more importantly, Mabel was the heiress of the lands of Belem, which was a region that straddled the lands on both sides of William's borders. So through Mabel, Normandy was functionally able to extend its borders. And then she was killed. 
which would have destabilized the region and given more power to the allies of King Philip, who were sitting right across the border. It also would have accelerated the blood feud that was already raging between the families in that region. So, it's possible that the murder and the subsequent destabilization was why he was preparing a campaign in southern Normandy. Either way, though, Orderic reports that William and the Norman army were in the south of their duchy at the beginning of the campaigning season, at a place called L'Aigle. And this was a family affair, because Orderic tells us that Robert, Rufus, and even 10-year-old Henry were all present. Which might have actually been a bit of a mistake, because road trips, even at the best of times, tend to fray sibling bonds. And lately, Robert had been getting on his brother's last nerves. You see, for ages now, Robert had complained and complained about how he didn't have enough authority. I mean, he was the heir, and he deserved more. And can you imagine being a younger brother listening to that? Your brother is already promised pretty much everything. And yet you're sat there listening as he moans about not getting his cash and prizes fast enough? I can't imagine how annoying that is. However, given the rules of this society, Robert did have a little bit of a point. Orderick tells us that prior to the Battle of Hastings, William had declared Robert his heir. And later, when William got really sick, he demanded that his barons proclaim their fealty to Robert as his heir which they had done. So Robert was the heir, and he should be treated as such, right? Well, Robert was still a teenager at Hastings, and a lot of time had passed between then and now. Robert was a man in his mid to late 20s, and something about him was giving William pause. And so, despite his position... Robert still didn't have any authority, and people were noticing. And every year that this went on, more damage was done to Robert's reputation. Even worse, his younger brother, Rufus, was about 17 or 18 years old now, and he was taking a prominent position at court. And Rufus was Rufus. He was famously ambitious, and so he was obviously loving his new rise in power. And there is nothing in our record that indicates that Rufus was going to hide his glee or even be tactful about his brother's situation. I mean, Rufus was the quintessential 11th century party boy. And like all party boys throughout history, they're a lot of fun in the right circumstances and frigging obnoxious in the wrong ones. On top of that, while we aren't told what Rufus looked like, later accounts do rage about how he and his crew were so sexy it offended the church and God. So we can guess. And meanwhile, Orderic reports that Robert was short, stout, and stuck with heavy, dull features. How Rufus even got the better nickname. The point I'm driving at here is that none of this was going to foster brotherly love. Instead, Robert was probably feeling pretty hard done to. But then things changed. On this campaign down south, we're told that Robert was operating with his own crew. And it included important up-and-coming nobles like Robert of Belem, who was the son of Roger de Montgomery and the recently murdered Mabel. 
So he was going on campaign and he had his own entourage. Now, Orderick refers to this entourage as a crowd of parasites, suggesting that they probably weren't authentic friends. But if you're an insecure prince who's desperate for power, having a crew and being given a small modicum of authority on campaign must have felt pretty damn good. But you know how it goes. If you give a little man a little power, suddenly he thinks he's powerful. And on one particular night, we're told that William Rufus and young Henry were hanging out in the gallery of the castle where Robert was lodging. And they were, quote, playing dice as soldiers do, end quote. Because of course they were. Like I said a few weeks ago, these kids would not have lasted as monks. They were born knights. And as the boys played dice, down below, their older brother Robert was hanging with the fellas. And I suspect that alcohol was involved, especially as the night wore on. Because we're told that Robert started to talk pretty tough. And he started to act like he was already the head of the House of Normandy. And his followers, knowing where their bread would eventually be buttered, egged him on. And Robert, fueled by this, started blabbing about how he would actually inherit all of this. Normandy, England, the lot. Every single bit of this, all of it would be his. And as Robert's courage rose, so did the blood of the two boys who were listening in from their perch. Because if Robert took everything, then what would be left for them? Nothing. It was outrageous. But down below, in the hall, Robert beamed as his courtiers celebrated their good fortune. Because everything was going their way. This prince was their golden ticket. Then a loud noise rang out from the balcony, catching their attention. And they looked up, just in time to see Rufus and Henry standing above them, tackle out, cutting loose. Raindrops are falling on my head. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And again, if you're searching for a last-minute gift, we got you covered. Gift memberships are super easy to set up, and you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. So I just did me some talking to the sun.